Thanks for listening to Lost and Rewound. You can check us out online at lostandrewound.com. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, and iTunes. Time to get embarrassed with us. I had a tape recorder when I was a tween, and in retrospect, those recordings were obscene. Travel back in time with the familiar sound. Let's all get lost and rewound. Episode 19, Hoboy Laundromat, featuring an interview with Tyler Gillespie. Hi. Hello. Welcome. Thank you, kind listener, for joining us again on Lost and Rewound. My name is Alon. I'm Melissa. And I'm Doug. This time around, we're going to be diving back into some of my old clips from the Danziger Zone days. And we'll also have an interview with a past guest, Tyler Gillespie, from the Awkward Phase. You know. I thought you were going to say, without further ado. ado. Without further <laughs> Without further ado, let us begin. Now it's time for Polish joke. I don't really want to do a Polish joke right now, so I'll just sing for you. <laughs> and for Bob, one of Bobby's neat facts, did you know that men develop breasts when they use marijuana? So don't use it. It's like wrong. I don't know what to say. It's like it's like wrong. It's I, like wrong. Just say no to drugs, kids. I wanted to hear a Polish joke though. He did have some Polish jokes before. Like, yeah, you know, have we listened to those before? I can't remember. I'm pretty sure we did the first season. Bobby's Polish jokes, one was a famous Polish invention, a submarine with screen doors. Yeah, that's a classic. <laughs> or a uh, Polish guy goes into a, do- into a doctor's office and says, Doctor, it hurts when I touch here, 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 and here. The doctor tells him, you've got a broken finger. Mm-hmm. I mean, then they go on and they go on. <laughs> a, a solar power flashlight, etc. But more importantly, um, sixth grade mentality when it comes to what drugs do to you and why you shouldn't have them, or what D.A.R.E. taught us, evidently. I was going to say, yeah, I think we were all products of the D.A.R.E. years. Or Do they still do D.A.R.E.? Is that still a thing? I don't think so. I remember a long time ago seeing an expose about the people who started D.A.R.E., or the guy who started D.A.R.E., becoming sort of this notorious figure. They found that he actually had not done anything to truly curb the drug use of our youth. Well, and D.A.R.E. was also, too, I think, a continuation of the Nancy Reagan just-say-no mentality as well, that the drug education we got was all drugs are horrible and bad and will make you an awful person and nobody will love you anymore and even th- thinking about smoking pot will kill you. I can't remember what they tried to teach us in that. I, I, all I remember is that there was an extension of it in middle school that was called Great! And they tried to use the same um, font as yeah. the D.A.R.E. t-shirt and it was so weak. I wish I still had my D.A.R.E. t-shirt because they were awesome. I feel like a D.A.R.E. Um, t-shirt is kind of hipster street cred too. Like you see them, they pop up every now and then in Bushwick. Yeah, I, don't, I mean it's not cool if it wasn't yours to begin yeah. with. But if it is, I still think that's cool. When I was in, I think, fifth grade, we had D.A.R.E., and I was also in um, TAG program, which was Talented and Gifted. And they would pull you out of class. I was in a similar thing. Yeah, they'd pull you out of class once a month, once a week, and you'd get together with all the other dorks and do, like, logic problems or learn about foreign languages or 
you know, the universe, something like that. We did a mock court in one of mine. Yeah, stuff like that. We we did one that was actually interesting, which was like we had to make an advertisement and like film it, right. and so that was cool. But um, they would schedule it so it was always at the same time as Dare because it was like all the non-instructional. It was, it was like the dumb kids go learn about drugs, right. and the smart kids go learn about logic problems, and it was like tracking much. Um, but I wanted to stay yeah. for Dare because there was going to be a German Shepherd and a police officer with Hell a yeah. gun. And, like, I wanted to a see cop, all that stuff. A cop was coming and he was going to bring his dog and they were going to give us a t-shirt. Yeah! Like, that's so exciting. And I was like, no, oh, I'm going to go do math problems. <laughs> so, in after a few minutes of tag or whatever, I, like, asked to go to the bathroom. And I got up and I tried to bring my books with me. And they are like, leave your books. And I was like okay so i just put them down and i went back to class and i got in so much trouble they were like trying to suspend me for leaving the talented and gifted program to go I learn could... about drugs yeah i couldn't believe it they were th threatening me saying that some other kid left uh campus unexpectedly and he got expelled and i was like well i didn't do that i just went back to my normal classroom what are you gonna suspend me for Learning. but anyways yeah, there's, well, I don't, they just, I just didn't do what they wanted me to do. Yes. But I wanted to be in D.A.R.E. so bad. Did I mention the dog and the gun? <laughs> I remember when, in sixth grade, I got to make a D.A.R.E. poster for the contest. My mom helped me make it because I'm not really much of an artist. And I was really not very imaginative. It was so basic. All my mother did was make the dare logo mm -hmm. traced it and then i went and colored it in and i spent hours it felt like coloring in the red and then the black and then i handed it to the teacher and i got first place for just, doing jack shit just nice. the dare logo got a dare jacket out of the out of the thing oh i mean i wish you still had that that would be awesome it would be awesome I had to model it, I remember. Then For for whom? It was the assembly. It was the stage of which we were presented with the award. So I had to go up there and I had to model this jacket and I, I didn't really think much of it. I thought oh, it was man. so stupid. I wish there was video of that. That sounds hilarious. Dude, I wish there was video of it. I wish as you said, Melissa, that uh, that we still had the jacket on me. Any trace of dare, like the shirt. I don't know, like the booklet that I had. I wish I still held on to that stuff. Obviously, I think anybody wished that they had held on to that memorabilia of fake drug education. Not fake drug education, but failed drug education. Hey, I knew a lot more about drugs after D.A.R.E. Sure. I, was, I, don't know, I feel like <laughs> D.A.R.E. always felt fake to me, and I think part of that is because, as we've talked about on the show many a time, my parents were sort of a lot more open and realistic than I think most parents were when it came to things that you're supposed to be afraid of as a parent tell your kids not to do. So when I was in the middle of my VH1 binging days, I used to watch a lot of behind the music, mm -hmm. to which my mother would just point out, nobody's life got better when they started doing coke. Mm. She used to leave me alone, let, let me watch just hours and hours. A fact that is still true today. Of musicians whose lives were ruined by drugs and alcohol. And her other bit of wisdom was that uh, not all drugs are created equal. Stay away from the white powdery ones. <laughs> to this day, I, and I have no problem saying this, I mean, trying Flonase for my sinuses pretty much turned me off of doing anything involving putting anything up my nose. So that ends that. But I... Not even pixie sticks? Ugh, why? I just... <laughs> wait, you did that? Yeah, in like middle school. Snort a pixie, snort, snort a pixie stick. Ugh. 
I, I, I can't be... It, bleh, bleh, it's just too much. There's actually an interesting uh, tack on to this clip about how we appropriate ourselves when we become addicted to some kind of um, drug. Um, let's take a listen. Oh, got a light? Oh, yeah, man. <laughs> cool. Oh, oh. Hey, oh. Give me one. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah. 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 That's sweet, man. Yeah, well, on this yeah. volume, we, we got more coming up for you, man. We got the yeah. history. <laughs> we got history of the dance goes. <laughs> Was your perspective on that influenced by anything in particular? Like more than likely that? media, but I don't. Well, remember. yeah, I assumed media, but this was the era of like uh, the Weasel and Bill and Ted. So I'm wondering who your uh, weed inspiration was as a child. Yeah, what, what was your? That's uh, a great question. What was your pop? What was your uh, pop culture sort of touch point, or what was your what was your reference point for what a stoner sounded and acted I like? I don't believe yeah. that Half Baked had come out yet, but no, that, I don't think so. That made a huge imprint. Um, I guess about a year or two later, the, I guess the imprint I had was Polly Shore. Because that was like classic California stoner without being a stoner. It was more like a, from Encino Man at least, or from Son-in-Law, <laughs> or from Biodome. Name your Pauly Shore film, and you pretty much had your easy trope for the stoner that was fun for the whole family. Thinking back on it, I don't know if this was my original um, reference point, but one of the earliest examples of stoner culture on TV or characters who were stoners... Thinking back on it, I jumped to Beavis and Butthead. But I was also watching, like, it was friends older sibling watching it, and we weren't really supposed to be paying it, like, not... Well, Beavis and Butthead was more for stoners. Yeah. They were never uh, cool enough to have drugs or do them. Right, but I remember them, I remember them acting high, or like... Well, yeah, these were just... They were so dumb that yeah. they seemed high. Positioning <laughs> this question to Douglas, because this was... Uh, yes, time. I'm honest. Yes, 1993. 1994. It was notorious at that time, I guess. And it's it, notoriosity. Notoriosity, right. Notoriety. Notoriety, indeed. What was the reaction in your classroom with all of the people quoting it, and did your teacher have a inverse, an adverse reaction? Oh, I don't know that it ever got up to the level of teacher being bothered by it, but I'm certain that there was a lot of people doing cornholio and putting their shirt on their head mm -hmm. and like walking around with their arms out going, <laughs> I can't recall a time when it got in the way of class or anything. I think it was more of a recess goof around sort of thing. Fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Downey, was awesome. One of my favorite teachers from childhood. She was so incensed by Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> That she actually, like, it's a, it's a, stopped her lesson one day and just called us all out, or called the select few of whom, at the time, were very much into the whole Beavis and Butthead thing, of which there were a select few. Uh, I had watched it, but I didn't really have the mindset to be, or to be quoting it in class and making an ass of myself. And I guess it just incensed her so much as to like actually do a <laughs> like just to sort of mock the awesome. whole thing, uh, that the, the the laughs and whatnot. I guess had made a firestorm because of some of the stories that had hit the nation, like some kid who had burned his house down or something because he was inspired by it, something along the lines. But you look at that, and it's no different than a South Park or any other cartoon that 
hits the kids because it's an animated show but doesn't have the kind of family-friendly nature that our parents so wish it had. <laughs> yeah, I think it snuck by at the beginning, uh, like South Park, because parents didn't realize that it wasn't appropriate until they actually watched it. Right. And then and people weren't as concerned about how bad it could be because television wasn't quite as bad at, I don't know, at that point in time. In the 90s, by, at that point, cable and MTV and adult cartoons were an established genre and a thing that was going on. This was also the same point where they Ren and Stimpy got away with being on Nickelodeon. Like, exactly. There was a little bit of a gray area loophole. People weren't paying attention to a certain extent to animated shows and what was on cable, I know, cable TV that but had kind of got through the cracks because nobody was paying attention. Yeah, I had that same thought about... I always thought it was weird that Ren and Stimpy kind of got like lumped in with other things that were clearly for children. I remember it came out at the same time as Doug and Rugrats. Correct. And or was there a fourth to that? Rocco's Modern Life got added later, but okay. Ren, Stimpy, Doug, and Rugrats were the initial three that were a part of the Nicktoons lineup. Yeah, and Ren and Stimpy was so much more uh, adult centric, or like you know, yeah, a higher higher level of. No, grossness no, I what, I, both I what, dog and rugrats i know what you mean because i remember ren and stimpy always being a little bit weirder than the other nicktoons and most of those 90s nicktoons even into like angry beavers and a real monster certainly rocco's modern life had their fair share of sort of easter egg content for adults and jokes and references that are much cruder and much more extreme in retrospect it shows that if you go back and watch them now as an adult there's twice as many jokes and they're twice as funny because you get so much more of it yeah. but I, Ren and Stimpy was way beyond that I liked that as a, that aspect of it as a kid because I could kind of tell but it was like it was a mystery mm-hmm. and I I could tell that it was funny but I didn't know exactly why I felt that way about um, Ren and Stimpy and Pete and Pete and like the state and other sh- like there was just shows like that where I was like I know this is for people that are older than me but I want to I want to know what's happening I don't know it was something esoteric about it that pulled me in. It was smart programming for kids. I use the term loosely. I, yes, the target audience was children or teenagers, but it was still clever and intelligent and had something in there for an older audience. Turn on Nickelodeon now and most programming made for children is just dumbed down to the point of being repetitive <laughs> even if you're four. I, well, that, that, yeah, that, the, that's a, a study, more or less a study that they probably conducted and realized that they were really registering with particular age groups more. So they had to accommodate to get the ratings in the place that they wanted them to be. Yeah, and I'll, I'll be, also, there's more channels now, too. Also so yeah, I would agree. I think it's gotten polarized a little bit. Like, there are more obviously more cartoons that are geared at adults like adult swim there's a whole block of them yeah right but that i think that not trying to hit all demographics with the same programming like alan was saying has kind of given them the opportunity to make shows that are just for kids and a totally separate genre of animation that's for grown-ups no i agree that that is part of it but i i guess what i'm thinking of is more like pete and pete it was the adult content or the things that went over kids' heads were not in there. It's like, oh, hey, here's something for mom and dad, too. Mm-hmm. It was just a show made by intelligent, interesting people who thought this random, obscure thing was funny, and if anybody else found it funny... They were right. Then it would be cool, too, but 
That was, it was an add-on. It wasn't the point of the show. A few points. Ren and Stimpy originated on MTV first, before it went to Nickelodeon, which made actually a little more sense, because when you look at the cartoons that existed on MTV, whatever time of the day MTV decided to put it on, be it Brothers Grimm, Max, The Head, Aeon Flux, uh, Ren and Stimpy fit into that really well. Liquid Television, all these cartoons really sort of fell in this whole really bizarre almost a really left field kind of crude animation lexicon the fact that Ren Stimpy didn't register with that audience was probably why it went to Nickelodeon Viacom probably looked at you know the people at the show they looked at this show they were like what this does not fit this is more of a kids show but that was probably the uh, mistake and what eventually killed Ren and Stimpy because it was too, I think as I mentioned early, one of the earlier episodes, I can say that correctly, was the fact that it was too kiddie for the MTV generation but far too obscure and adult-like for the Nickelodeon generation. Um, and the other point I wanted to make was um, because I had singled out Doug in asking about the Beavis and Butthead controversy, but I did want to point out that when you were in 5th grade or 6th grade, South Park maintained that same controversy, and so I can only imagine how many kids in your class are being like, get it, get it, get it, get it, get it! Oh, yeah, no, uh, respect my authority, and you, <laughs> and you killed Kenny. And that was a thing in middle school. Um, South Park was still relatively new around 5th, 6th grade, like, yeah. Kid, like kids who had older siblings and were cool enough to know what it was. Like it, if you knew what it was, you were cool, and people talked about it. But it was not the phenomenon, pop culture quoting. It hadn't quite blown up yet when I was in fifth grade. Got it. All this talk about Ren and Stimpy uh, basically brings home the point for me that it really helped shape a lot of what I enjoyed in entertainment when I was growing up because Ren and Stimpy by and large was one of the cartoons that I distinctly remember watching all the time so us talking about it just makes me all kind of giddy that we're all talking about it as opposed to the South Park and the Beavis and Butthead more or less um but I recorded a few clips of Ren and Stimpy during my time in Danziger Zone and we have a few that we can play but I like this one the most let's take a listen and we'll be right back on Lost and Rewound it's midnight. A lone scientist works into the night. A seeker of truth, toying with the very stuff of life. Yes! Rubber band. Ooh! Ooh! And Ah! Harmless when apart, but when combined in the proper proportions, can create... Nothing! A monster! Like? Yeah. All right, what the heck is going on here? Alon, you went to New Orleans last week. Yes. What did you do there? What did I? What did I not do in New Orleans? My God, we did everything. We ate really well. Uh, my wife and I had her brother in town, so we did like a ton of uh, like touristy shit, and awesome. we went went to like the World War II Museum, the two of us, and then we met up with my brother-in-law and his family. Went on like an air boat adventure on a swamp nice did like we did so much we wanted to do that when i was down there but it was raining the whole time yeah so like r- river boat in the rain seemed terrible oh Earth, yeah, yeah for yeah. sure if it's gonna be wet weather if it's gonna be like super hot down there you really just want to do nothing other than just just be inside or find some 
like, I don't know, one of those places where you can get, like, a $5 jello shot and just, like, stay in there. That's actually really very uh, trailer trashy. I don't know why I would ever do that. But there was plenty of great places to drink and plenty of nice pl- place to eat. And Yeah, where'd you guys want and where'd you guys eat? God. Or what was the best that yeah. you had? Yeah, God, I, one of the best places was the place that left a lasting impression on me. You would like this. Uh, I know, Doug, you're a vegetarian. You would definitely appreciate the uh, Satsumas, which is, like, a breakfast joint in the Bywater area. They made a beet it's lemonade. A kind, it's a kind of orange yeah. satsuma. Yeah. Yeah. They, I didn't know that. What lang- Is that Japanese or what is it? Probably. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not an etymologist. <laughs> um, but the the place is great. Uh, evidently, it's been written up before in the New York Times, so you know it's legit. No, it's very cool. They make like a beet lemonade, which was just, still tasted so good. Uh, good, good breakfast joints in general there, but that one was my favorite. Um, the po' boys there were great, and uh, one of the places that I went to eat a po' boy was at Melba's Po' Boys, and I met up with Tyler Gillespie from the Awkward Phase at Melba's Po' Boys. It was not the most conducive space for an interview, because they play music really loudly, and there's like, oh, honey, your order's up! Like, you know, just like very distracting environment to conduct an interview with someone that, by and large, I've never met before. I feel like, though, that a, to a certain degree, that's perfect for a Lost and Rewound interview because most of the source material is sort of guerrilla sure. recorded. What do you want? An interview that sounds good? Exactly. Like, You've come our, to the wrong place if you want really well-sounding interviews. Most of our source <laughs> material is of poor quality and was recorded without any thought for background noise or levels. It might be or, well-sounding, if by that you mean it sounds like it was recorded in a well. Correct. So what I meant was it sounds professional and uh, there's grammatical integrity of which I cannot be uh, I cannot be a trustable source, a trustworthy source. <laughs> so what you can trust me for is at least the energy, as Doug has pointed out before, and the fact that uh, I have the passion enough to bring a freaking tape recorder with me to another city and meet up with somebody that... I was really excited to meet, and I think we had a pretty good discussion. So let's take a listen uh, to this check-in with Tyler Gillespie. So I just wanted to thank you again, Tyler, for joining us on this remote from Lost and Rewound, New Orleans edition. Awesome. Thank you for having me. I guess the main question I have for you is, first of all, um, how have you been? And since the last time we spoke to you, I mean, he was the winner of 2012 uh, so much has gone on with you 2013 I, sorry yeah no I've thought out since that winter a little bit I moved to New Orleans from Chicago because now I'm getting an MFA in creative writing so I kind of went from doing more comedy things to more poetry things so it's been kind of an interesting shift with the brain and with the city I had never been to New Orleans before I moved here right I never visited it's really interesting because when you grow up somewhere for the whole life you've had thus far and want to go traveling, yeah. and you just end up going somewhere that you've never gone before, I feel like there's some sort of kind of blind optimism that we all have. The wanderlust in us will get us somewhere that we've never been before because it feels that way with so many people here. Yeah. I've been here for two years working and basically writing the same thing over and over and over again. Right, like you're basically, it's a rough draft and it's like a project, oh. your thesis. I know about the thesis process and it's right. like, it's basically what you're working on. What kind of work is it exactly? Well, it's a, it's nonfiction. It's a collection of essays. What I'm, are the essays on, mostly? 
they well I wrote an essay about Second City actually I wrote a, an essay that actually has Jane in it too the first time I met Jane at Second City so there's some comedy humor pieces but they're also more reported pieces about cultural reportage is what they're calling it I guess but I also work for a newspaper here I review theater for the Alternative Weekly, the Alt Weekly. You grew up in Florida and spent your uh, college life or high school life in Chicago? No, I only lived in Chicago for two years. So you just keep on floating. I just keep on... You're, keep you're on. making a circle. In, in yeah, I keep on going wherever there's opportunity, I think. Because in Chicago, I actually... I was working for Time Out. I was freelancing for Time Out Chicago, and then they went all digital. So they cut 85% of their writers. So I, of course, got cut. And then I applied to grad school and I wanted to come back to the South because I think it's really complicated to work in Chicago when it's so cold. And also it's hard to start working, going to school in a place where you have a life. Yeah. You know? So I wanted to come somewhere I had never been and I knew no, no one. And also New Orleans is one of the best cities to write in in the country it's just there's a lot of interesting things yeah and beautiful people and it's great well in terms of Florida you're uh, you must have had quite an upbringing in Florida and remind me exactly where you were from originally I'm from Largo which is near Clearwater um, one of the best beaches in the country okay big it up big up big up Clearwater <laughs> go check it out um, it's near Tampa so you know I grew up going to the beach a lot, but I'm really pale, so I would sunburn a lot, you know, but I love Florida. I write a lot about Florida. I love Florida. Was there a lot of inspiration from your hometown? Yeah, because I think I have, the short answer is that a lot of people talk a lot of shit about Florida, and they I think do. it's just Seth Myers. Yeah, Seth Myers has a whole segment about it. Yeah. Baker, Florida. Yeah. You know, and you have, like, the Florida man and, like, all these crazy Florida stories, but there's a lot of drugs going on there, but there's a lot of creative people. So I used to really dislike Florida when I was younger, as you sometimes don't like where you grow up. You're kind of embarrassed of it, you know? Yeah. But as, uh, you know, when I hit, like, my mid-20s, I realized how awesome coming from a weird state can be. Every little town, uh, or big town, whatever, close to any larger town that, than of yours, because there's always going to be that, especially in outlying areas or like, you know, off like the main drag. Uh, Woodstock is like only two hours from the city, and sometimes I feel like it's eccentricity to get the best of it, but that being said, um, I share a lot of that eccentricity. I bring it with me everywhere, you know? It just follows me. Do you feel like there was a lot of interesting uh, instances of growing up, you know, in a small town? Like any like amazing like memories that occurred? You see where I'm going with this? Like, I totally what I, see. Um, no, <laughs> well, actually, um, there is a specific thing that I did have in mind. Um, you know, in terms of how we were recreationally, like what we did when we went to parties, right. like the whole drug education in Florida, for example. Tell me, I can only imagine, it, it must be interesting. Well, I grew up as a Southern Baptist, and I went yeah. to a Southern Baptist private school, so we were abstinence, sex, drugs, alcohol, all that, 
But, you know, I started kind of going out when I was, like, 16, 16. 17 to yeah. gay bars. Because you can get into bars at 18 at Florida, and I had a fake ID. In Florida, and I had a fake ID. Yeah. But, so, I don't know. I never really got... I Any drug ed- education was just dare. Dare against drugs. But, yeah, we had that, too. Yeah. You know, it's something that I think we all grew up with in the yeah. late 20s and early 30s. This particular drug education that is just... Totally, like I think of past, like it's so iconic, but it just like it totally didn't work at all. Yeah, and we were talking about that earlier. And oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Florida, Florida had a lot of prescription pill problems at the time. There's a lot of older people there. Sure. But of your friends, though. but of your friends, I know you oh, know about. Friend. I know you know about all those. People. Okay, <laughs> sorry, grandmother. Um, I repeat, my grandmother. Um, I uh, I was gonna say the um, fact is that you must know people, even so much as growing up. I mean, were you the only Southern Baptist, or were you all your friends were? In, you all helped, my friends were Southern Baptist. It was all like a basically a not even a, a gang of sorts, but you just. You were surrounded by the right folks. I don't know. I mean, that's complicated because I was also coming out, and you would get kicked out of school for being gay. Sure. So, I mean, surrounded by the right people is complicated. Maybe the people weren't doing drugs, just smoking pot. You know, but then I would go across the bridge to Tampa... Mm. where people were doing, saying, oh, hey, crystal meth is not as bad as cocaine. That's it. You know what I mean? Which is totally, I think, you know, a great marketing strategy for crystal meth, but, you know, just false data. I wonder what the drug history is in general. Prescription over, over the counter or uh, yeah. other uh, illegal uh, abuse cases, really, like, where it really began in Florida. I mean, it's not to single out, but... I think it would be interesting to go into any one state that's renowned for, you know, crazy stories. And New York and Chicago, uh, sorry, New York and Illinois, political corruption notwithstanding. I think have plenty of stories. (laughs) But but on the drug tip, it's hard to tell. Like, I'm not really, really too sure. Um, I think it's weird how D.C. has legalized marijuana recreationally. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, you know, I... I drank a lot more than I did any type of recreational drugs. And drinking was never uh, something you were pressured into? No, I just... Well, no. Was there one time that was, like, where, like, you found yourself, like, being around alcohol and feeling like maybe you wanted to, but nobody pressured you to do it, but you just were like... Well, I have to, uh, maybe, possibly. Yeah, I don't know. The first time that I ever drank was at my dad's uh, wedding in Kentucky to his uh, second wife. So the first time I drank was in Elk's Lodge in Kentucky because that's where they had their reception. Very classy. I drank a Roman Coke because that was all I knew how to order. Had a little champagne. But I actually quit drinking. Like, I've been, I quit drinking like three and a half years ago. Really? Yeah. When I moved to Chicago, I had stopped drinking and doing any type of drugs. It's it must be interesting being in New Orleans now as an adult and in class and looking at all the vice that goes down and how it makes you who you are just to like avoid it and focus more on what you're doing right now. Yeah, because New Orleans. 
what's New Orleans is really uh, interesting because you can drink on the street, and so like everything around here is about drinking. But you know, just being focused on what I'm trying to accomplish is better than being messy. Live from New Live from New Orleans, the Melvas on Elysian Fields. Thank you so much again to Tyler Gillespie. You're welcome. And before I leave, I want to say, last time we were on, we were talking about the awkward phase. Indeed. Tell me what's going on with it. The book is coming out February 2016. We can not wait. It's going to be good. Thanks so much, Tyler. You're welcome. Thank you. So that was Alon's remote interview at Melba's in New Orleans. And it's connected to a what now? A laundromat. That's nifty. <laughs> you can get your laundry and lunch. <laughs> Laundry and lunch, all in one. I mean, that sounds uh, kind. Uh, yeah, it's the corner. It's on Elysian Fields and Claiborne. That's okay. The, um, awesome. The cross I'm, streets. Well, it sounds pretty cool. Like whenever I'm doing my laundry, I want to have lunch. Uh huh. So they seem to have solved an essential need there. I had the one half there, and then I had the second half on my uh, plane ride back because the sandwiches were so massive. Nice. That's awesome. <laughs> Where Melba's is, regarding where my sister lives, is like about a five-minute drive, but it's about a 20-minute walk. Gotcha. And, uh, but at any rate, it was a fine walk. I was just exhausted from the walk because of how um, the temperature was and just for the sheer amount of walking I did. Uh, I'm, you know, I live in New York. I've been here for as long as I have, and walking is something that's second nature. But it's a lot different walking down there than it is in the city, where I feel like everybody walks around everywhere there, but they walk slower because sure. they can't. Okay, so as, because as, as jump in here, actually, yeah, yeah. as a southerner in the room. Yeah. Um, granted, I've never been to New Orleans, but that air, like cities like New Orleans, in that part of the South, in a swamp. From May until almost Thanksgiving, the air, you can just, you cannot taste it. It's just heavy and damp, and you, you can't go anywhere quickly. Like that's, Yeah, it's, it's very humid. Yeah, hu- humid is an understatement. New York gets humid in the summer. Right. Yeah. Go, to, go to Atlanta. Yeah, well, you got to slow down so you don't get so sweaty walking right, so around. You pass, so you don't pass out from heat stroke. Exactly. Um, which is actually t- where a lot of stereotypes of Southerners being like lazy and productive and unproductive and not doing things quickly has to do with the fact that for a good four or five months out of the year, trying to do things quickly will yeah. result in death. It's just so hot you don't want to move. So the University of New Orleans uh, is located around Mid-City, which is where Tyler lives now uh, while he's uh, is doing his studies. And Mid-City is, when you look on a map, essentially north of where everything else is. Like the French Quarter, right. everything is there downtown. Right. But downtown looks like it's uptown. So where like, I was staying, for example, uh, was over near Magazine Street in the Toro section. And that's right. south by the um, by the levees and everything. And for whatever reason, that's considered uptown. So not to dispute geography versus the way that the locals consider uptown and downtown. But let's just say... Where do you settle on the get up or get down debate? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I guess I have to go uh, ambidextrous. Um <laughs> You're going to an area that's very far away from the center. Everyone drives there. There's no train that really goes there. I guess you could maybe take the streetcar or something or maybe take a bus. And after the interview was done, as soon as the interview was done, we 
pretty much jetted out of there. I almost killed Tyler. I'm so glad that he is still talking to me, um, trying to get him to get on his bus so they can get back to class. Cause you we almost to... killed him? How? You well, know. no, that's not true. I ran across the street because I'm the best pedestrian ever, especially when it comes to being in new cities. And, and, you know, the traffic patterns there are a little different here in New York. Obviously, you can get away with, if there's no exact implicit stop sign or the ability to cross and then let cars yield to you, if the traffic is going to be weird at this sort of like little roundabout like it was over at Elysian and Claiborne, it was just ridiculous trying to get across the street, even though I had the walk sign. And then Tyler is on the other side of the street, and I'm basically waving this bus to stay, stay, stay. I, I want my friend to get on this bus. I had to be the, uh, the good Samaritan. And then we got on him, it's fine. So you delayed the bus for yeah. him? Okay. I think actually what I more did is I more pissed off the bus driver than I did yeah. try and uh, <laughs> inconvenience my friend. But it, it, it was all my fault basically for making things go later as it did but again thanks to tyler for not only uh entertaining the time had for a quick check-in but also giving me a taste of what really are some of the best po'boys in new orleans and for the record i had a hamburger po'boy yeah can't wait to have him and claire back on to for talk sure. to talk about the awkward phase and the book which he plugged coming out february 2016 I, f I figured not talking about it was was not a bad thing because when we have them on we could really talk about it more and get more into the nitty-gritty because i i don't want to say this maybe i contributed something but i don't know if it'll be in the book oh awesome i didn't know that i i gave cool. them some story but who knows yeah. if it'll show up so not crossing fingers because that might be bad with juju so just gonna see what happens whatever i'm gonna cross fingers Okay, <laughs> we'll, we'll be uh, back with a little more after this quick word. This is Lost and Rewound. Do you have a Danziger Zone of your very own gathering dust in your parents' basement? Well, we'd love to hear your archived audio, no matter how old it is. Email your contributions to lostandrewound at gmail.com. I talk, you listen. Today for I Talk, You Listen, which you should, when I talk, you listen, we're going to have someone who we sure hope, who we, we're in a room that's totally locked up so no one else can get in here, especially this person's wife, because I don't want to be anywhere near that person, because the person, my very special guest is John Bonnet. Hi, John. Hi. Hi. Uh, I have to go. What, what do you want? Um, I want to have an interview with you. What do you say to that? Uh, but what? About stuff. Well, what kind of stuff? Not that stuff. But um, I just want to ask you, what did it feel like? It felt, it felt really bad, man. Hi. I got to tell you, we're in a dark room right, right now. So you're not supposed to know who I'm talking to. But oh well. You can't see him. Yeah, you can't see him. Well, of course you can't see him. This is a recorder. It's not a television camera, so we don't have to be in dark room. Turn on the lights. Okay. Now. Um. Hmm. Hold on. Okay. Now. John. Yeah. You sound really crazy. 
I'm not crazy. It's just when you get your dick chopped off by your own wife, you feel really weird, man. Especially when you when your wife did it, and because you, your dick is chopped off, and you don't have any dick now. Did you get it sewn back on? Yeah, but it even hurt more. Oh, that would hurt getting it sewn. Oh. Oh. Was there like blood gushing out? Yeah, I did. I threw up. Get your quarter away from me right now. Okay, now. Um. Hold on a second. I'm right back. Chad, are you gonna be in in like a movie or something about what happened? I rated X. I hope they never make a movie of this. It's my own private life. Who wants to see me get my dick chopped off? Well, everybody. They already know about it, but they haven't seen it. And they already seen all that stupid video. I hate Bruno Yankovic. He made that thing and showed me. I look stupid. Hold on a second. One more time. Back and I just told Ian to shut up. Okay. There's one thing I gotta say to my wife. What? I am just glad that you are in jail. And I wish that the one thing I like. The only thing I don't like about girls is that I can't chop off their pajamas. Well, there's nothing really to chop off. Um, I'm glad we had this talk. And remember, when I talk, you listen. See you now. See you later. Bye. This has been I Talk, You Listen. The, the guest on I Talk, You Listen is John Bobbitt. Yes. Uh, Not what, John Bonham, as I initially thought. What, what do you know about John Bobbitt? I mean, I was too young at the time to really register what happened, um, but I do vaguely, generally know the story in retrospect that his wife found out he was cheating on her in some capacity and she chopped his dick off. I... Right. So when you're uh, a kid and you are in school or you're at home and you have these current events that are coming about and everything is pretty much standard fare, like the Tanya Harding versus Nancy Kerrigan, that was just sort of, whoa, what, huh? Olympics? You know, big dramatic story. And then O.J. Simpson was a big thing back then, too, but that was just the biggest crime of the century at the time. And then there was this, which was just sort of completely off the wall and what the fuck? Yeah. Uh, For a kid, no less. Fully aware of this news story and uh, definitely affected me in the rest of my life, like I got it. That's like one of my worst nightmares. Oh, right, right alongside, like rolled up in a carpet and thrown off a bridge. What? No, do you remember the Simpsons when they're gonna steal oh, the pig and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Homer's thing is like, and then we roll him up in a carpet and throw him off a bridge. <laughs> like that was. Um, that's just a terrifying thought. You would drown yeah. and die. I don't exactly. want to drown. I don't want to have my dick chopped off by. Those are- anyone viable fears <laughs> yeah. for any male or for anybody i think in general <laughs> for any person so i would like to point out that uh I, I was so polite to my own defense i couldn't even get my character to say the word vagina i wasn't sure who was doing the I voice was that was very you. much playing john Bobbitt. and that was brooks hosting uh his i, I talk, talk you was, listen yeah okay i thought maybe it was ian because i heard someone saying ian had to shut he up was singing in the background okay that's who was singing generally rabble rousing i liked it I, I, gave, I gave it some ambiance. I, I appreciated the the picture that Brooks was trying to paint, wherein he was trying to kind of say this is like a dark room a, interview, and I was picturing like 
those documentary interviews where the person's blacked out and their voices changed, yeah. but it was all totally ruined by announcing John Bobbitt super loud at the beginning. Yeah. Like, like it was an Oprah announcement. John yeah. Bobbitt! <laughs> God. <laughs> What's under your chair this time? <laughs> Hold on, I might be completely making this this part up, but didn't they like try and save it or reattach it? Like that's that that was alluded to. Yeah. Yeah, I believe it worked. As, yeah, as I understand. Like, like, what do you do? Like, that's going to be a very bizarre surgery. I guess. Um, I don't really know, but as far as I understand, it worked. There was recently a uh, similar surgery for a guy in, I think it was in South Africa, who had become unpeniled at 18, <laughs> and at 30, they were able to, like, reattach a donor uh, phallus. Um, and it's just like that 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 was a success was uh, huge news like I don't know like a couple of months ago it was this is really recent yeah very recent it was the first time it's ever been successfully done with uh, a body part that was from someone else you know which body part yeah so, so now we can uh, do well, we can do penis transplants as well right well what happened as according to Wikipedia he attempted to generate money from the notoriety. So clearly he got it back, and then he tried to get more than that back. He he got that after getting that back. He tried to get his groove back by like pu- using all the publicity. He tried forming a band. Evidently, he I think he did some pornos or something. At least one. I don't know if it was pornos. Pornos. He did did a like a WWE uh, appearance. Evidently, what what had happened was I guess uh, it's too late for him to do Dancing with the Stars because he's like. You know, twenty years past. Yeah, but I just, I, it sucks that his name and just like uh, Monica Lewinsky, like it will forever be associated with like the biggest, most embarrassing thing. What happened was eventually, after seven hours, this is the quote: after seven seven hours of deliberation, the jury found Lorena Bobbitt not guilty due to an insanity causing an irresistible impulse to sexually wound John. As a result, she could not be held liable for her actions, and under state law, in Virginia rather, the judge ordered her to undergo a 45-day evaluation period. So the, the, the mention in the clip that she was away in jail was erroneous, because right. she was not away in jail. Well, she may have been in, in jail awaiting, awaiting trial. Awaiting trial. Ah, right. that old chestnut. Right, so his answer was, oh, okay, well... I'm going to try and milk this as much as I can until I am irrelevant for history, of which he basically is now. At least he embraced the fact that he was kind of a, like, he was a little bit of a freak show, or like, he's got, it's got his 15 minutes, write it as hard as you can. Yeah. Yep. Until you break it off. He was about, t- he was about 10 years too early for reality television, unfortunately. Oh, God. You know, can you imagine, like, in the 90s, some of those stories that I just brought up, how they would have been milked in the whole reality TV canon? Oh, like BuzzFeed could have done the 10 best gifts from the O.J. Simpson trial? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure that's probably already there anyway or something. Right, but like... <laughs> <laughs> the, like the top 20 instances of resting bitch face, I... Which trial left a bigger impression on you? The Monica Lewinsky trial or the O.J. Simpson affairs? Oh, that's a good question. And I, by that I mean the Monica Lewinsky affairs versus yeah, the O.J. No, Simpson I, I, trial. I followed that train of thought there. Um, Lewinsky affairs... Band name, I called it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Done. I think I mean, O.J. Simpson was first, but I think I remembered or engaged with the Clinton Lewinsky Kenneth Starr scandal more. I was old enough at that point too to sort of really understand what was going on and that this is bullshit that we're holding up Congress because the president got a blowjob. 
I didn't quite grasp what a blowjob was, but it seemed dumb to me and I understood what was going on. Unlike the OJ trial where, okay, this guy who was a football player that's famous probably killed his wife, but he hired Johnny Cochran and so now it's okay. I Right. I was also not, when OJ happened, I was also um, not super familiar with criminal justice. Like, I hadn't watched Law & Order yet. Right. So I think whole... that, that shaped pretty much everyone's childhoods and the teenage years for the most part. Right, so my whole understanding of courts and criminal justice were still like very basic Saturday morning cartoon. Police help people. Right. They catch bad guys. Yeah. Yeah, what I think the, uh, the way the OJ trial shaped culture is like the trials as entertainment became way more of a thing after that right like yeah the it was always a fascination and you know you can go back in time and there's tons of you know the trial of the decade or whatever it was that made headlines and was important to the news but the amount the cultural impact and the amount the ability to follow it through constant uh television interaction just kept growing and growing afterwards like before that there was people's court and whatever there might be like court tv would be nothing if not for the oj trial exactly (laughs) i think even so with the kind of the bizarre story that the bobbit uh, fiasco or whatever you want to call it was at the time that would be in this day and age almost an afterthought nobody yeah, be would a bl- be a blip in the news exactly nobody would, would a, care it would be a florida man story <laughs> it's it's so true on on that full circle-ish note uh i think that's the end of the show that is the end of the show we'll be back in a few weeks with another full episode of lost and rewound rate us review us on itunes and soundcloud be friends with us on the internet we're lost and rewound Take care, America. Lost and Rewound is hosted and produced by Alon Danziger, Doug Johnson, and Melissa Lloyd. You can find us online at lostandrewound.com. I'm Alon. And you're listening to the dog drinking water. Are we going to need to do the open again? Yes.